Good morning. morning. It's a joy for me to be with you and uh, to meet a congregation that has been uh, a long time, I think, and and very very strong supporter of the Ecumenical Institute of Theology. Uh, You've given us people. You've given us gifts of money. I think you've given us your prayer and encouragement. And so as the dean of the Ecumenical Institute of Theology, I thank you for that. Um, your pastor, Jason Poling, has introduced me at about, about every good restaurant I've ever eaten at in Baltimore. And so I, I, think, I think you see what I'm talking about there. Um, being new, uh, it, it's always uh, tricky business whether you're going to find friends or not. And uh, I know I've, I've found friends in Jason and in this congregation. You know, you, you found out purple was my favorite color, and so you all wore purple today in order to make me feel welcome, and I'm grateful for that. I don't know if it's your custom or not to read the passage that we're going to preach from, but I think I'll do that, and uh, I'm going to read it from the New English Bible, and the reason I'm reading from the New English Bible is twofold. One is... Having just moved into a new house eight days ago, I can't find any of my other Bibles. You know, I have 40 versions on my computer, but I didn't want to hold my laptop here. The other reason is I doubt anybody is using this particular translation. And so to hear the text in another translation, I think may give us an opportunity to at least hear it with fresh ears. Hear then the word of the Lord. What follows? Is the law identical with sin? Of course not. But except through the law, I should never have become acquainted with sin. For example, I should never have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, Thou shall not covet. Through through that commandment, sin found its opportunity and produced in me all kinds of wrong desires. In the absence of law, sin is a dead thing. There was a time when, in the absence of law, I was fully alive. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. The commandment which should have led to life proved in my experience to lead to death because sin found its opportunity in the commandment, seduced me, and through the commandment, killed me. Therefore, The law is in itself holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. Are we to say, then, that this good thing was the death of me? By no means. It was sin that killed me, and thereby sin exposed its true character. It used a good thing to bring about my death. And so, through the commandment, sin became more sinful than ever. We know that the law is spiritual, But I am not. I am unspiritual, the purchased slave of sin. I do not even acknowledge my own actions as mine. For what I do is not what I want to do, but what I detest. But if what I do is against my will, it means that I agree with the law and hold it to be admirable. But as things are, it is no longer I who perform the action, but sin that lodges in me. For I know that nothing good lodges in me, in my unspiritual nature, I mean. For though the will to do the good is there, the deed is not 
The good which I want to do, I fail to do. But what I do is the wrong which is against my will. And if what I do is against my will, clearly it is no longer I who am the agent, but sin that is lodging in me. I discover this principle then, that when I want to do the right, only the wrong is within my reach. In my innermost self, I delight in the law of God, but I perceive that there is in my bodily members a different law, fighting against the law that my reason approves and making me a prisoner under the law. That is in my members the law of sin. Miserable miserable creature that I am, who is there to rescue me out of this body doomed to death? God alone, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. In a word then, I myself, subject to God's law as a rational being, am yet in my unspiritual nature, a slave to the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. It's hard to say thanks be to God to that, isn't it? More like... Wretched, awful, miserable. Well, I want to speak under four themes today, four points as we sort of work our way through part of what Paul has to say. I I was grateful to notice in the bulletin that the same passage is up next week, Romans 7, 7 to 25, part 3, and Jason will come back and and clean up the mess that I'm going to make here this morning from the pulpit. However confused you get today, don't worry, next, year, next week Jason will come back and straighten it out. So the first of, of the four things I want to tell you this morning is that Romans 7 is the reason that I'm married. Romans 7, the reason I'm married. Some of you are married. For how many of you could you say clearly Romans 7 is the reason that you're married? All right, clearly you all are not as devoted to your Bibles as you ought to be. Actually, it has nothing to do with the content of Romans 7 per se. But in 1983, I was a sophomore in college and I took a a January intensive in the book of Romans. And we had to write an exegetical paper at the end of the semester. And as it turned out, I would do in that my sophomore year in college and my junior year in college and all four years of seminary and most of my years in Ph.D. program, I procrastinated on the paper that I needed to write for that class. I didn't write it the first week or the second week or the third week or even at the beginning of the fourth week of the class. And on the Thursday before the paper was due on Friday at 10 in the morning, I started writing the paper. And the paper was on Romans 7. The exegesis of Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this exegetical paper? And I stayed up all night working on the paper, and I had a a draft of the paper that was, was, I thought, pretty good, but not ready to be turned in because it was not a clean typewritten copy. And so I went to a friend that I worked with in, in my campus job, Missy Henderson, And I asked her if she would type the paper for me that morning, Friday morning. Had about an hour till it was due. I knew that she was a very fast typist. 
And so I sat beside her and she typed from my rough draft a, a clean copy of the paper and I would uh, interpret any of the handwriting that she couldn't read. Oh, that word is such and such. Oh, you spell that Greek word this way. And, and we got the paper done with 10 minutes to spare. And I went off to my, my Romans class and turned in the paper and, and got a, a grade that was probably better than I deserved. And it was time to remunerate the typist. And so I went to her resident director and I said, Lois, uh, you know, Missy typed this paper for me and I got a good grade and, you know, I, I think I, I should probably do something nice for her typing the paper. Do you think I should pay her or do you think I should take her out on a date? Because I liked her. And, and Lois knew that Missy probably wanted to go out on a date with me and she also knew that Missy was broke and really, really needed the money. So she, she's thinking about how to answer the question. In the wisdom of God, Lois said, well, Brent, why don't you do both? And I thought, oh no, that's going to cost twice as much as one or the other. <laughs> but I did. I paid her, and I also asked her out on a date, and we've been married for 28 years. Romans 7 is the reason I'm married. The point in telling you that rather long story is, is first Jason said I had to explain why I, I told him when he asked me to preach that Romans 7 is the reason I'm married. The second reason is that interpretation is important, but relationship is even more important. Romans 7 is the part of the, the letter, the epistle to the Romans, that may be the most confusing. Um, there is uh, endless scholarly debate about who exactly Paul is talking about when he starts using that first-person singular pronoun, I. Is he talking about himself, somebody else? And if he is talking about himself or, other, or someone else, is he talking about them now in the present, after they've been brought into saving relationship with Jesus Christ? Is he talking about them before that, as they come up to that point of, of being redeemed by Christ? The interpretation of that goes on and on and on, and it's exceedingly tricky. Jason asked me ahead of time, now what's your take on the I in Romans 7, Brent? And I said, well, you know, is this a Tuesday or a Wednesday? Because it depends on which day of the week it is and what side of the bed I wake up on and whether the sun is shining or not, exactly what interpretation I bring to this passage. But the deeper point, and the point that's not tricky, not confusing, not debatable, is that Romans 7, like the rest of the epistle, is not trying to give us a riddle to solve or a difficult interpretation to, to, to prove that we're smart enough to figure out, but it's trying to draw us deeper into the gospel of God, the theme that Paul announced in Romans 1. It's trying to draw us deeper into union with Christ, deeper into life in the Holy Spirit. So figuring out who the I is in Romans chapter 7 is not the key that unlo unlocks Romans 7. Who is it? Well, I'll give you a couple of answers in a moment. But the key thing to answer here is, with whom is Paul trying to draw us into relationship? The answer is, Paul is affirming our relationship with God and seeking to draw us deeper into that relationship. So interpretation is important, but relationship is even more important. 
And the relationship that matters here doesn't show up until the very end of Romans 7 and the first verse of Romans 8. The relationship that matters is our relationship with the triune God, the Father of Jesus Christ, and the giver of the Holy Spirit, with this triune God who is one. So Romans 7 is the reason I'm married, and it reminds us that interpretation is important, but relationship is what really matters. The second theme is that I am not the star of the Romans 7 show. I am not the star of the Romans 7 show You are not the star of the Romans 7 show. The star of the Romans 7 show is sin. Okay, might be better to say that sin isn't quite the star as much as the villain of the Romans 7 show. And sin is a massive villain in this passage. The If you want a hero, if you want the real star of the show, that doesn't quite show up really until the very end of Romans 7 and on into Romans 8. And that will be Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, the word I and its correlates, me and my, show up again and again and again in the verses that we read. And it can feel like, I mean, you know, somebody's already counting them, right? And, and if you count, you're going to need more than ten fingers. Um, I, me, my show up again and again and again. Almost as many times, but with greater significance, the word sin shows up. My point is that Paul's focus here is not on this I, who says, I am unspiritual, I do the things that I don't want to do, my inner person, I agree with the law, but in my outer behavior, I disagree. His point is not that I as much as what has caught the eye and trapped the eye and distorted the eye, and that is sin. Sin is the villain. Sin is the subject of the worst sentences here. Sin is the agent of the worst actions in the story that Paul is telling here. When we all stand before the judge at the end of history, sin will be charged and sentenced as the mastermind of the crime that has been perpetrated on humankind. We we could be sentenced as accomplices, accomplices, but sin is the mastermind. The good that I want to do, I fail to do. It was sin that killed me. It was sin that killed me. And thereby, sin exposed its true character. Sin became more sinful than ever. Um, Or if you back up to verse 11, the commandment which should have led to life proved in my experience to lead to death. Why? Because sin found its opportunity in the commandment seduced me and through the commandment killed me. Sin is doing the dirty work in this passage. So, a few weeks ago, um, I sat with at least some of you, I think, in a theater not far from here, and we watched The Hobbit, The Unexpected Journey. Who was there? All right. I'm tempted to become the movie critic for a moment, but I won't. Um, 
My, a few weeks later, my daughter saw the movie and texted me in all capital letters, do not go to The Hobbit. Uh, she, she was deeply disappointed. Let, but we'll leave that to the side. J.R.R. Tolkien's books, The Hobbit and then the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the movies that have been made from them do one thing that's really, really helpful. They present us with a world in which it's perhaps easier to see and to feel and to imagine the personification of sin and evil. They, they give us a world in which we can, we can sort of see and hear and feel the way in which sin and evil take on personal qualities, not impersonal qualities. The way in which evil feels more like someone plotting and scheming and acting against us than something. Um, here's an example. I, we, we actually drove home last night from North Carolina. Um, a long journey, and the closer we got to here, the worse the weather got. And the signs of the road begin to warn us. Uh, road conditions may be dangerous. There may be icing on the roads. And so I began to watch the road for black ice that I might come up upon and, 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 and lose control of the vehicle and crash. And while I was watching for the black ice, a maniac in a giant, um, massive pickup, you know, the... the the 350s that are almost as big as tractor trailers, attacked us and, 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 and came this close to our vehicle and, and literally ran us off the road and then went off at 90 miles an hour to an exit. And we didn't understand where this pickup came from, why the driver of the pickup decided to attack us, um, what we had done to provoke it, um, we were just thankful that he saw an exit and decided to leave us alone. That's a lot like sin. It's not the black ice on the road that impersonally sits in wait, and if we just happen to cross it, it will cause us to lose control and wreck us. It's a lot more like a maniac driving 90 miles an hour in a Hummer that comes after us. It has a personal quality that will find us wherever we are, whether we're um, driving too fast already or very sedately observing the speed limit. And it will come along and plot our ruin, our doom. Paul, like the rest of the New Testament, like most of the Bible, sees our fight against spiritual forces that are acting against us in very personal ways. As Paul says in Ephesians, our fight is not against human beings, it's against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in their heavenly places. And here, Paul says, sin has hatched a plot to use the law to do us in. Sin has hatched a plot to use the law to do us in. And we step back and we say, wait a minute. I thought the law was a good thing. I thought the Torah was God's way of life and blessing. 
Which brings me to the third point. Good advice kills. Good advice kills. How many of you love to take good advice? Nobody, right? (laughs) How many of you have children that if you give them good advice, they will immediately go and do the opposite of what you've told them to do? Okay, I see there are two honest people in here. The rest of you are either childless or not willing to admit the truth, right? You tell your kid to do one thing, and what's your kid do? Almost certainly the other thing. Good advice kills. Now, I admit that advice is the wrong term from a, to, to use for the law, to use for the commandments, to use for the Torah. Maybe the worst possible term. After all, think about Israel standing before Mount Sinai waiting for God to give the covenant law, the Ten Commandments, right? Israel spent three days getting ready to hear this. God finally speaks. And God says, I've got nine or ten good pieces of advice for you. And here they are. Is that how it goes? We don't call them the ten good advices. We call them the ten commandments. And we call them commandments because they're authoritative. They're authorized. They're authored by the one who authored creation itself. If anybody knows how we should live, it's God. And if God decides to share with us how we should live, then to call it advice would seem to be a little bit underwhelming. But in another sense, advice is precisely what the Torah is, precisely what the the covenant law is that God gives. It's wisdom. Wisdom that outlines precisely the good life, the way of flourishing, the way of living well and healthily with God and with neighbor. I mean, watch this. Do you want a safe city? Well, don't murder people, right? If you want a safe city, don't murder is pretty good advice. Do you want a healthy economy? Stop stealing. They, They go together. Do you want strong families? Healthy marriages, no more adultery. Do you want a fair judicial system? Then don't perjure yourself and bear false witness in court. It's good advice, right? In fact, it, 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 it's obvious. It makes sense. And in that sense, the Torah that God lays out is precisely God, the author of life's advice on how to live well. But Paul says that in a fallen world like ours, in a world where sin is like a roaring lion roaming around seeking to destroy us, in that kind of world, good advice can kill us. Good advice can become the occasion of our undoing and our dying rather than our living and our thriving. Yes, Paul says, the Torah, the law, the commandments are good and holy and just. They're not bad. They're good and holy and just. But sin uses the commandments 
the Torah, the law. Sin colonizes them. Sin enlists them as an accessory after the fact. An indicted co-conspirator in this case. And takes what is holy and good and just and allows it to become the place where we experience rebellion and lawlessness and undergo death. Where we come to know sin in the biblical sense, not simply as an idea in our head, but but as an experiential reality that we are undergoing. So what is Paul's great example of all of this? Which of all the the Ten Commandments, which of all the law or the Torah does Paul choose to focus on in order to show us how the law, this good advice, because of sin's scheming, gets drawn into our destruction? Which commandment does he pick? Clearly, honor your father and mother, right? It's right there in the text. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? How about one of the really big ones right up front? You shall have no other gods before me. Don't commit idolatry. Idolatry was the besetting sin of Israel, right? Every time God turns around, Israel's running after idols. So surely that's going to be the one that Paul picks to focus on. But he doesn't. Where does he go? Don't covet the very end of the list of commandments. Depending on what tradition you're a part of, it's either the the 10th commandment or there are actually two covenant don't covet commands and you've got the 9th and the 10th. So do you all think it's the 10th or the 9th and the 10th? You think it's it's the 10th, don't you? Okay, this proves that you're neither Lutheran nor Catholic. You're in the Reformed tradition, which is good. The 10th commandment. I remember growing up, people would come to church and in the most pious and holy way, they would say, I covet your prayers. And I'd think, are we allowed to do that? <laughs> the 10th commandment says don't covet. I mean, is it, does it mean don't covet anything? Or does it mean you can only covet the right things? And so I thought that was a way that we, we were trying, you know, in our holiness tradition to be a little edgy. You know, to say, I'm so holy that I can safely covet, even though we're not supposed to, because I covet your prayers. Well, it turned out that, that we were kind of onto the right thing, because the word that we translate here, covet, actually can be used in a positive sense for positive things that we really ought to desire. What it's really pointing at is desire. And what it's trying to do is rightly order our desires, which is going to lead me to the last theme and draw me back to one of the prayers that we prayed this morning. We prayed and asked God that we might delight in God's will and walk in God's way. You're on the hook because you prayed that earlier. All of us did. We all prayed together and asked God to help us to delight in God's will.
The tenth commandment, the last commandment about coveting, is about learning to delight in God's will. It's last for a reason. It's last for a reason because it's the commandment that looks back on all the other nine that have come before and says, and don't just think that that's a matter of outward conformity. Don't just think that this is about whether your actions do or don't follow or break the rules. This is about the heart. This is about desire. This is about the whole of the person. And whether the whole person wants what God wants, loves what God loves, receives gratefully what gives. It's about whether you as a whole person can delight in the will of God or whether you are pushing back against it, resisting it, refusing it, chafing at God's will and way with the world. So the fourth theme is, I want more. I want more. Don't you? So today... I know this is going to come as a surprise to all you people in your purple jerseys. Today is Super Bowl Sunday. And as we all know, for most people in the United States, the most exciting thing about the Super Bowl is the commercials. There are really only two places every year at the Super Bowl that, that care all that much about the game. The two cities whose teams are still in. So today... Baltimore and San Francisco care about the Super Bowl. The rest of America will probably be turning in for the, the commercials that have paid up to $4 million for a 30-second spot. We could do some serious ministry with $4 million, couldn't we? The Ecumenical Institute of Theology could really do some good theologizing with $4 million. And, and we could do it for longer than 30 seconds. We could give it like a week of theologizing for 30 seconds. I mean, I mean for $4 million. It, for a million dollars, I'll theologize you for a year. <laughs> but instead, we'll tune in today and we'll get actually 30 seconds of theology at $4 million a pop. One of the commercials that's been running is, is I, you know, I, I'm a connoisseur of commercials because um, they are, in some ways, where some of the like blatant theology of our culture gets done. One of the ones that, that we've been watching for over a year that my wife hates with a passion is the soda ads that have the kind of the young guy that, that every time somebody gives him something, he says, and? Right? And? You know, and so he gets the great job and the stock options, right? He, he gets the great clothing and the sexual liaison with the saleswoman. You know, it's just one thing after another. And? 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 That's about coveting, isn't it? That ad. Getting something good and desirable and always wanting more. I mean, in the end, of course, the ad says that what is, is it Coke Zero is the cure to coveting. Um, Coke Zero, 
the cure to coveting. Thanks be to God. Who can save me from this wretched situation that I'm in? Paul cries out. 2,000 years later, Coke Zero can save you. It's an ad about coveting. And? And? I want more. That is the heart of coveting. That is the mind of coveting. That is the cry of coveting. I want more. So Paul pulls out coveting and focuses on it here as the commandment in which we discover that sin uses God's good, life-giving commandments to kill us. He focuses on coveting first because coveting is the last one in the list for a reason. It, it, It shows us that our disobedience begins in the heart. Our disobedience begins as we delight in something besides what God is freely giving us. Ahab coveted his neighbor Naboth's vineyard. And from that covetousness came a plot to bear false witness against Naboth and murder him. And so it came to be. Almost every one of the Ten Commandments is broken by the end of that story. But the story begins with the Tenth Commandment, with coveting. David goes up on top of his palace and begins to covet his neighbor's wife Bathsheba. And by the end of the story, David has murdered his neighbor Uriah and committed adultery with Bathsheba and broken most of the other commandments too. But again, the story that ends with breaking all the commandments and with the seeds of division and destruction that will finally separate Israel and destroy David's family. It all begins with the Tenth Commandment and coveting. So Paul knows what he's looking at when he focuses here. He knows it because he knows it goes all the way back to the beginning. The commandment against coveting is really a restatement of the disaster that happens all the way back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent, this personification of sin that's more crafty than all the other wild creatures, comes to Adam and Eve and recognizes that they have been given a Torah. They have been given a way of life. They have been given a commandment. That is, that they can live in a garden and till it and keep it and enjoy all of its fruits. They can delight there in God's will. They can walk there in God's way. And in that garden, there is one prohibition. One prohibition. And what is it? That wasn't assigned in the homework, right? Just read Romans 7. Nobody said anything about reading Genesis 3. Sorry. There's a tree over there. Don't eat the fruit on that tree. Right? 
All of this is good for you. That, that will destroy you. Yes, I see that hand. (laughs) It's not a good Sunday if you haven't embarrassed somebody, so I've embarrassed myself, now I've embarrassed you. You know what the, 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 the sort of modern translation of that prohibition would be? Instead of, do not eat the fruit of that tree, don't covet. Don't covet. That's really what God had said to them. That's really what God had said to them. Don't covet. Don't desire beyond the bounds of what I have already given you as a free gift. Don't imagine that what I didn't give you is somehow better or more desirable than what I did give you. Because in fact, I have given you everything you need to flourish, to live a life of abundance. I've given you everything you need to be happy. To live in delight. Don't covet what I haven't given you. Because it won't make you happy. It will destroy you. That first story is a story about coveting. It's a story that reminds us that desire is a good thing. That it's good to desire. I can covet your prayers because it's good to desire your prayers. Coveting is that place where desire turns toward objects that, it ought, that we ought not to want, either because they belong to others and we already have what we need, or because that desire is our fundamental mistrust that God is giving us what we need to be happy. Don't covet, God says. And the serpent says, why shouldn't you covet? God is trying to hold back what's really good and desirable and what you really want. God knows that if you actually eat that fruit, you'll be better than you are now. Have more than you have now. Be happier than you are now. Don't trust God for your happiness. Don't trust God to be your happiness. Desire to find your happiness there, apart from God. Apart from God's will. Apart from the gifts that God is giving you. So when Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin if it hadn't been for the commandment you shouldn't covet, do not covet, Paul is simply reminding us of this story in which people know sin not as an idea, but as an actual lived reality precisely because in the occasion of the giving of the commandment, which is good advice, the best advice, sin comes in and uses the commandment to destroy us, to lead us astray, and to kill us. God creates us as a people who want more. And that's a good thing. Augustine says, You have made us for Yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless 
until they find their rest in Thee. That restless heart is this desire we have, an insatiable desire that's finally for God and all the good things in God. And God can finally be our true satisfaction. But sin creeps in and invites us to seek and desire other satisfactions than God. To say, I want more and mean by that, not you, God. I want more when our prayer should be, I want God. You ever sung the song, Give Me Jesus? Give me Jesus. And I don't know how it goes after that, but that's the point, isn't it? Jesus is what we desire. Jesus is what we want. But the sin... But sin came in and used that command against coveting, which in its positive form is to say God can finally fulfill your desires. And it used that command to lead us astray and kill us. Which brings us to Paul's cry at the end, who can rescue me? Who can rescue me from this pit into which I've fallen, from this slavery which has captured me? Who can rescue me from the death that has afflicted me. And his answer is the same answer that the story began with. The one that we were created to desire all along. God in Jesus Christ. Paul's answer at the end of Romans 8, who can rescue me? God alone, through Jesus Christ. And then chapter 8, verse 1, in the life-giving Spirit. Here at the end of Romans 7, Paul draws us back to the logic of Romans 5. You've, all, you've done Romans 5, right? At this rate, I imagine it was like four years ago you were in Romans 5. In Romans 5, Paul contrasted Adam's trespass with God's gift. Adam's coveting with God's satisfying. Sin increasing, but grace abounding. Do you want more? You can have it, Paul was saying in Romans 5 and is still saying in Romans 7 and 8. If you want more, you can have more. You can't have more sin. You can't have more alienation. You can't have more misery. You can't have more death. But if you really want more, Paul says, you can have abounding grace. You can have overflowing love. You can have an infinite life-giving Spirit offered to you in Jesus Christ our Lord. To want more is to be who we were created to be. To be human. To be Adam's son and Eve's daughter. I want more. But when I say I want more, it means I want Jesus. Jesus who is the answer to that insatiable desire, the deepest satisfaction of my life and yours. The heart wants what the heart wants. As the the saying goes in pop culture, But what the heart truly wants is more and more of God. So, Romans 7 may not be the reason you're married, But relationship is the most important thing. 
The villain of Romans 7 is sin, but the hero is Jesus Christ. Good advice kills if you think it can save you. But don't covet is finally the advice that Jesus is what you truly want. So let us all say together, I want more. Give me Jesus. And that wasn't rhetorical. I want more. Give me Jesus. I want Jesus. Thanks be to God.